Hello everyone, this is Matt Ferret, author of the Prepare for Medicare book series, and welcome to another episode of The Matt Ferret Show, where I interview insiders and experts to help light a path to a successful retirement. Come say hello at www.themattferretshow.com for YouTube videos, show links, notes, websites referenced, quotable quotes, and the complete show transcript. Thanks in advance for liking, following, subscribing, and rating the show everywhere you can listen and watch it. It really does help spread the word. Gender bias is defined as some sort of intentional or unconscious prejudice that favors one gender over another. Multiple studies have highlighted gender bias in healthcare over the years, essentially how doctors treat women versus men, and the differences in approaches to healthcare and outcomes by gender. My guest for this episode is author Susan Salinger, who recently published a book entitled Sidelined, How Women Manage and Mismanage Their Health. While acknowledging gender bias, Susan also writes a lot about helping women change this dynamic by showing them how to advocate for themselves, how to get past embarrassment, communication issues, shame, and even loneliness, basically proactively changing their approach to the healthcare system so women are less affected by gender bias. This episode will give you an insider's view into the latest links between gender and healthcare, gender differences in outcomes, approaches and attitudes towards self-care, second opinions, and how women can change their approach to their doctors and the healthcare system. Enjoy. Susan, welcome to the show. Thanks, Matt. I appreciate you having me. So tell everybody what you do and how long you've been doing it and how you help people. Okay, good question. Number one, I'm a writer and I just finished a new book what was released in April called Sidelined, How Women Manage and Mismanage Their Health. How long I've been doing that? It took me about 10 years to write, believe it or not. I mean, part-time, obviously. But nevertheless, there's a lot of research and I interviewed a lot of women and it, you know, it took some time. And so the book will help people because especially women, because it will help them navigate the relationship with their doctors and recognize some of the hurdles that as women, we all have to overcome. Talk about that a little bit more. Tell me why you decided to write a book about this. Well, I had a personal experience, an unfortunate personal experience many years ago where I agreed to some surgery that I knew I didn't need. And I won't even bother with the details, but the point is I had the, it was exploratory surgery. I had the surgery. I was right. Everything was fine. I didn't need it. And I felt very ashamed and angry at myself for not listening to my gut. And I really one began to wonder, I mean, was I the only idiot in the room or do other women feel this way as well? So I just let it go. And then several years later, in fact, many years later, I was taking some classes at, at college. I had retired and gone back to school. And I met some other women who had also agreed to surgeries that they didn't need. So then that kind of really tweaks my interest. And I thought, you know, what's going in on here? How do we as women make decisions? And why are we all agreeing to stuff that we don't think we need? And why are doctors prescribing stuff that we may or may not need? So all those questions occurred to me. And so, as I said, I interviewed a lot of women and found five or six things that we all had in common. And, and there were reasons that we agreed to this stuff, even though we knew that we didn't need to. Along the journey, 
did you find big disparities between the way doctors treated women versus men? Or did you find that women were responding differently to doctors than men may be? What's the, what's the difference in gender here? <laughs> the answer to the question is all of the above. Doctors do respond different. Some doctors do respond differently to some women. I'm being careful because truly it's not a generalization. Um, and there is gender bias. I mean, it's still out there. There's no question about it. So as soon as women start talking about their feelings, and we all do that, and I can get to that later, um, it, it leads to a psychological diagnosis. So it, it's, 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 there is no question that doctors see what they expect to see and sort of hear what they expect to hear. Um, and that is partly because of what I, because that's what they do, but it's also partly because of how women talk to doctors. We're much more emotive than men are. When you go to the, as a man, when you go to the doctor, I assume you're pretty succinct. You kind of tell them the facts and tell them what your, or her, what your symptoms are. Just the and facts, ma'am. Yep. Yeah, just, just the facts. The fact. Yeah, no, I am not that way. And maybe you can tell that already. When somebody says to me, how are you? I want to know, you know, well, how much time do you have? Because I spill out the whole story. And that can lead the doctor, not, not because of his or her fault. It just leads them down the wrong path. And sometimes the emotional symptoms or my feelings can take over my physical symptoms, which are why I went there in the first place, you know. Um, so it's it, we have to be a little more a little more focused when we talk to the doctor, and I so I that answers part of your question, but also uh, men and women doctors do have different, uh, I guess, diagnostic styles or professional styles. Um, a, a male doctor like you, they're more business oriented. They're they're much more. Um, there's the visit is shorter than it is to a woman. A woman doctor is much more interested in building a relationship. In fact, one of my, my favorite questions that I'm asked all the time is, should I go to a man or a woman doctor? And the answer is, it doesn't matter. It depends what you want. Because if you're on your lunch hour and you want to get in and get out, go to a male doctor. If you want to build a relationship, go to a female doctor. You want to pick the style that fits with your particular lifestyle. And of course, you want somebody that's competent. Uh, that's, you know, that's the main thing. There's lemons in every profession. So be careful. But now that I've said that, it really doesn't matter. Do you see an age difference there with the uh, male doctors and, and ages and female doctors and ages? Or is this just what comes out of med school um, and, and uh, what comes out of, I guess, uh, the different approaches to medicine by gender? You know, I don't really know the answer to that. I think younger doctors have less gender bias. I did do a little bit of research. They have less gender bias than some of the older doctors. And I don't know about age bias. I mean, I'm going to be 80 next month. And so I, so far, I, 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 well, I ran into it once. And this is funny. I went to, it was not so funny. I went to my internist and, you know, I just for a regular checkup and I brought him my book. And I said, here, you know, I said, brightly, I brought you a book I wrote. And he looked at me and he looked at the book. He said, well, when did you do this? I mean, as if I had done it back in 1939 or something. You know? And I thought, excuse me, buddy. I said, I just finished it. It's brand new. And he was startled. Do you know that's the first time I've ever felt my age? Uh, yeah, <laughs> no, that's... Can I have my book back, please? <laughs> I'm going to leave five in the lobby, but you can't have one. Is that yeah, what you told them? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> yeah. 
All right. So let's go into this a little bit more. You interviewed a lot of women uh, for this book. Uh, what were some of the commonalities you already touched on uh, earlier in our talk? Oh, I'd love to talk about that because what was so interesting is I did interview women with all kinds of different diseases. And what was so interesting to me was that the, they had several behaviors in common regardless of their particular disease. And the first thing I found, which did not surprise me at all, is that women put themselves last. There was a study done where they gave women a list of five items to prioritize, you know, which would they care for first. And first we care for our children. And second, you'll love this, we care for our pets. Then we care for our significant other or family and, and elderly family members. But and last but not least, we care for ourselves. So in fact, um, there was also, a, this is fun too, there was, a, not so fun, but there was a study done in Canada where women who thought they were having a heart attack just laid there in bed and did not wake their husbands or call the paramedics because one woman said, well, her husband worked so hard during the day that she knew he needed his sleep. So she, I know I would never do that, you know? <laughs> I, I, everybody in, in San Francisco would know that I, you know, I was having an issue, but that is it, her, her response is typical. Um, it's, it's certainly, let me say, I don't know if it's typical, but it's not atypical. It's more common than you realize. We really put ourselves last. And the other thing that I really learned was that women hesitate to get second opinions much more often than men do. And I thought that was interesting because really it's the second of the chapter in my book on second opinions is per, perhaps one of the most important chapter because it's so important to get a second opinion. And, you know, women have been taught to play nice and we don't want to be rude and we don't want to hurt the doctor's feelings and all of that goes on. And so we just, he's, he's, I've so many women said to me, well, he was the professional. Who am I to question him? And, you know, my answer to, to any woman that thinks that is, it's your body. And if you're prescribed some, a very, a serious drug or like myself, an invasive procedure, you really want a second opinion. And, and again, that's because we see what we expect to see. And doctors have different opinions and symptoms, symptoms are so random and can be so similar. We all can have different diseases and share the same symptoms. So it's really tricky for a doctor to, to make an accurate diagnosis. It's not, a hard, it's not an easy thing to do. And so in, in some, most doctors will appreciate the opportunity to discuss their diagnosis with a colleague. I've never had a problem when I've asked for a second opinion. And I just think it's so important. Why do you think there's a hesitancy based upon your interviews and, and your own experience? I well, mean I, I, again, I think we're socialized. To, to, as I said, to play nice and, and, and not to not, we don't want to hurt the doctor's feelings. And I think the other reason is so many of us don't realize how many diseases are out there. There's about 20 to 40,000 diseases. And, you know, if you go in and you say, you know, I have no energy, I'm exhausted, I have no appetite, those symptoms can fit probably all 20,000 of the diseases. So for the doctor, it's truly like looking for a needle in a haystack. Um, all he can do is make his best, most educated guess, but it's a guess. I mean, and, and, and a, a doctor will be the first to tell you that. Um, so I think that that's part of the reason we hesitate is we tend to go in and think, oh, you know, the doctor will tell me what I have and then I'll be fine and I'll live happily ever after. That's true if you have a broken leg and you go in and your leg hurts and they do an x-ray and they show a break, you don't have to go to med school to diagnose your pain. 
but if it's usually not that simple. There's a line in your book that you said, I'm going to quote it here. I was confused by the conflict I saw between the energy and thoughtfulness women put into their own health care and then the amount of regret they expressed to me about a, at least one major health care decision they had made. And that's why you finally decided to sit down and write about it. Mm -hmm. um, what is that? that that confusion was your confusion solved by this um by by your interviews or was it confirmed both in a funny sort of a way because women we are proactive about our health we make sure our tests are up to date we we get our checkups we do whatever we need to do but i found that when something was wrong when you when you felt like you were having a heart attack or whatever it was that's when you that's when the women hesitated and I think number one, that meant that if they were diagnosed, let's say with a heart attack, that meant that probably meant that for a while anyway, they wouldn't be able to do their duties. They wouldn't be able to take care of their children or they wouldn't be able to help their husbands or go to work. So I think the conflict comes in when women have something specific that may take up some, some time that they have to get well, they have to fill prescriptions, whatever it is. That's, I think, when the hesitation occurs. Like I just went in for my physical. I knew I was fine. I went in, everything was fine, except you made fun of my book. And then I left, you know. <laughs> but I, I think that was the difference I found because it was a real conflict. I mean, I couldn't understand. And there's literature that talks about how proactive we are. And there's literature that talks about how we don't always go to the doctor. So it's, you know, it was a hard balance. And I think you know, I know you noted this in the book, but you know this and and you actually give examples of, of this out there. And anybody who's going to watch is going to immediately pick up on it. All of the healthcare advertising in this country, from pharmaceuticals to insurance, yep. um, it's all aimed at women. All of it. Right. Every single commercial uh, is aimed at women. And um, yet you found something here that while the healthcare is aimed at it and they're very proactive in taking care of themselves, you know, the vitamins, the exercise, and then they help, um, you know, others and their family members, you know, keep up with appointments. I mean, there's a lot of that going on. And even the healthcare of, of, of the family members in their lives is they usually take on that responsibility, as you know, yet something happens when they walk into the doctors. Is it really that authority figure piece or um, is that that emotion versus logic approach? Um, you know, what happens when they walk in the door uh, typically, or what you found uh, to a doctor's office, what changes? Um, and, and, and if something changes, how can people and women listening uh, change that dynamic that if, if they've gone through that? I think one of the things that changes is the anxiety. There's two things that happen. And I, I can speak for myself here as well. I get anxious when I go to the doctor. And I know a lot of the women that I talked with also do. And the other, and, and what happens is when you are anxious, you tend to talk about your anxiety. Perhaps you, you start talking about your feelings. And at the same time, wait, what do I want to say here? I, I know I, in the women I interviewed, there was a tremendous amount of shame too about being ill. So, and I found that absolutely fascinating because I, I don't happen to feel that. That's, that's not my personal MO on it. Um, but so many of them felt ashamed and were embarrassed that they were ill. So I think that to answer your question, when they walk in the doctor's office, they're embarrassed. So they hesitate to talk about all their symptoms. 50% um, uh, of women lie to their doctors. 
and 25% of that 50% don't even think that their line is a problem. Not understanding that now that they've distorted what's happening, the doctor's chance of an accurate diagnosis are even less than they were in the first place, you know. Um, and I was, I was startled at the amount of shame that women feel about being ill. That took me aback. In fact, what was particularly interesting is I put together a couple of, I talked to most women on a one-to-one -one, and I put together a couple of focus groups because I wanted some geographical diversity. And none of, well, I shouldn't say none, but most of the women in each of, I had two focus groups and each of the focus groups had never talked with anybody else about their symptoms or about their illness other than their doctor. And I, that was, and most of them said they were embarrassed, they were ashamed, and I heard how lonely they were. They were so delighted to be in the focus group because they were, they were exchanging stories. I mean, I had hired a facilitator and she barely had to facilitate because they were like really talking, you know? <laughs> But that I so I think that's one of the things that really you walk in the door, you're anxious, you're ashamed, you're embarrassed, and you I mean that muddles you up. So what's your advice? Uh, how do you get over that, or how do you how does someone work to get over that? A recognize it and B work to get to to blast through it. I, I think the first thing you do is recognize it. Number one, but I think too there's there's some things you should do, and I I I always use the word should you know very cautiously. But you should, you know, make a list, go in with an agenda, a piece of paper, if you can, don't have the list in your head, write it out. What the list will do is it will help you focus. And it also keeps the doctor on track. I, most doctors will ask for a copy of my list so they know what it is I want to know. And secondly, I think you need to really do your research. Say the doctor says you have disease X. What you want to do is get the clinical name of your disease, have them or her spell it out for you, and go home and do your research. In fact, the second most important part of my book is the resource list at the back. I've done your research for you. All you have to do is go to the back of my book, look up what you need to look up, and you're home free. So go in with an agenda, get the clinical name, try to take somebody with you if you can, because four ears are better than two. And I'm one of those that get anxious, so anxious that sometimes like, if I really think I've got something wrong, I can't always hear. Uh, the doctor will say one thing and I either won't hear it or I'll hear it. And, and my hearing's fine, you know? <laughs> it's just right at that, at that point in my life, it isn't. So again, make a list, take somebody with you, do your research and don't, whatever you do, introduce a new problem or a new symptom is the doctor's just about ready to leave and half out the door because you won't get a full answer. And that happens more times than you realize. So that's my suggestion. And that's my, those are my suggestions and my advice. Be prepared, bring a healthcare journal or a notebook and, and, and bring a friend to make sure that I did leave something out. The other thing I do, and I think it's important is I repeat back what I heard the doctor say. Um, and the reason I do that is number one, because I get anxious, I wanna make sure I heard correctly, but also it gives the doctor a chance to confirm or add on or delete some of the stuff I said. So it gives us both a chance to make sure that, that, that we're being accurate. And that's also important. Let's say we're um, going in or I'm going into a doctor's appointment and um, I get anxious and I forget things. I do this all the time. Um, I, I'll have my list. And then I just won't cover it because, you know, you get the impression the doctor's busy and 
Right. You know, you want to rattle it off. Um, so what happens, what, what's your advice um, when you mess up an appointment? You know, when you get out and the doctor goes, well, thanks, we'll see you in a year for yeah, your physical. Year and you're right. like, darn it. Yes. Well, I, I have two, two things to say. One, and I did forget to add this, prioritize your list. So if you have a list of six things, at least get to, you know, you'll have, you'll have them in order. So if worse comes to worse and you screw up on five or six, you won't be as upset as if you screwed up on one or two. And then you have to email the doctor. I don't know, you know, some doctors, mine doesn't have an email, but there's a patient chart and I can send messages, but I email or I message or I phone back and I say, hey, you know, I forgot this. I mean, that's all you can do. I don't know that there's an alternative, but you have to, can you re-communicate? Is that a word? <laughs> I think it is. Yeah, good. See, it's clear. Yeah, it is now. Um, yeah, right. I know you mentioned this a little earlier, but I do want to hear a little bit more about this, the focus groups. You mentioned it took you 10 years to write this. Um, yeah. So you put together focus groups. Not, not a lot of people do that. So where were they? Talk about how you put those together. Um, you mentioned, you mentioned a little bit of, uh, you know, the, the camaraderie, it sounds like it, it yes. immediately happened. Yes. Talk a little bit about why you did that and what you learned. Well, I learned, well, I, well, how I did it too. You also asked me that, and it was easy. I threw money at the problem and hired a, a focus group person and they put the people together and they facilitated. And I just took notes like crazy, plus got a written report, you know, so that, that was easy. That part was easy, but what I learned and it was so interesting to me because, well, I, when I talked to women on an individual basis and I went and, and met with them in their homes, um, it was much more intimate on a one-to-one. In fact, two or three of the 40 people I did interview said to me, you know, well, I shouldn't, well, I'll tell you because I'm never going to see you again anyway. So there was an, in and they were right, you know, and there was an intimacy and I, I, I had, I got some wonderful information. The focus groups were less intimate. But I was able to observe, number one, the loneliness and, and the invisibility. That, in fact, that's going to be my next book, because it really struck me how invisible and how lonely these women felt. And part of it was because they hadn't talked to anybody else. By, by, by being so quiet, by being so embarrassed, they unfortunately denied themselves the support that they so desperately needed. So in the focus group, all of this desire for support came through. And it was just, it was a phenomenal experience, frankly. I mean, I would, I would do it again in a heartbeat. You said that twice now, loneliness, and it took me two times for me to pick up on it. So sorry for that, but let me hit it. Are you talking loneliness from single women, uh, mm. widows? Are you talking just lonely, even with, you know, families, because they're simply not communicating their healthcare or to anyone other than themselves, they're internalizing it. When you mean lonely, like, give me some examples. What do you mean? Okay, good question. But nobody's asked me that before, and I like it. Um, loneliness, first of all, one thing about illness is you're socially isolated. I mean, you're sick. You can't, you don't go out, you're bedridden, you're in pain. I mean, whatever the hell it is. So it, it's, uh, it's, it's almost loneliness in that sense is almost an automatic response to any illness because you can't have, you don't see people, you don't have the energy. Maybe you don't want to see people, whatever. Um, what was the rest of your question? I'm sorry, I lost. Well, loneliness in terms of uh, oh. are we talking, you know, single women here, widows, no. or are we talking lonely, you know, even within a broad family structure? 
I, that's what I was, thank you, because that that's where I was going to go. I think that was the loneliness. There's a lot of the people I interviewed had uh, chronic illnesses or autoimmune diseases, not because I chose that, it's just the way it worked out. And with an autoimmune disease in particular, you know, you can look fine and be in miserable pain and nobody will know. Um, and so these, these women who are in pain or who are not feeling good and, and it doesn't show on the outside because they have on makeup or they're dressed, um, nobody recognizes just how poorly they're feeling. So that's a different kind of loneliness from the first kind is because you lack people because you're sick. That's social isolation. This, this particular kind of illness that I'm talking about now is the invisibility. You're not recognized. Nobody understands. They say to you, oh, you'll, you'll get better or stop whining. You look just fine. Or I had a cousin that had disease X and she got better. Why haven't you? But for example, one, one woman I interviewed who has lupus, which is an autoimmune disease that many, many women get um, and you can't see. Every time she pulls into a handicapped uh, uh, parking space, Somebody will yell at her and say, you shouldn't do that. I'm going to call the police, but you should, you'll get a ticket. You have to leave that for people that are handicapped. That's the kind of loneliness I meant. That's a, uh, that's a societal. Yes. That's, a, that's almost a societal commentary right there. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. And you really don't know who's sick and who isn't. It might be nice to take people at their word. I mean, why would somebody tell you they're sick if they're not, you know, uh, that would be a peculiar response. Did you, uh, did you notice any geographical differences between where you live and other portions of the country in terms of uh, women advocating for themselves? No, I did not. And partly was because I didn't research that piece of it. I didn't separate it out that way. I, uh, that doesn't mean there weren't any, but it doesn't mean there were. I truly don't know. What, what struck me was the commonality of the behaviors from no matter, and that was true whether they were, you know, black, white, Latin, west east north you know it didn't matter the behaviors were the same you know you mentioned uh, or you talk a lot about the you know the individual and what the individual can do to um uh change their patterns and change their speech and, and change their doctor if they need to um what other things do clinicians who might be listening um what might they want to think about if uh there's a doctor or a dentist or a pharmacist listening in on this right, right. i think and again, that my, my book is really about patients. However, of course, I have, an an, I have a partial answer. I think some of the issues are structural. I think, for example, that, I mean, I know, for example, that women's illnesses get a lot less research money than men's illnesses. Prostate cancer, for example, gets much more money than uterine cancer, ovarian cancer, cervical cancer. And the women, those three cancers are much more fatal than, than prostate. So we need more money. And that will, that will automatically give women and their diseases the attention that perhaps they're lacking now. The other thing that's the problem is, and is finally changing is for years, women were not included in clinical trials. We are now, it's much better than it was, but we're still living with that history. So we know a lot less about women's bodies than we do about men's bodies because of all of the history. So, and the other reason I think that women have trouble getting the recognition that we deserve is that we get a lot of autoimmune diseases. As I was saying, the, the chronic diseases, you, you can't always tell that somebody's sick. I heard story after story, and I've read book after book about how women who have, are in terrible pain, it can, 
it takes about five to seven years to get an autoimmune disease diagnosed. And so many times those women are given antidepressants, told to see a, a psychologist, you know, a therapist. Um, it's, there, it's, it's in your head, don't worry about it. We still have remnants of the hysterical women from, you know, many, many years ago. That's, that's changed, it's been modified, but we have an unfortunate history with medicine and it sometimes comes back to haunt us. If I'm in this situation um, and I am told that, what's the correct response? How do you handle that in the doctor's office or how do you handle that diagnosis of, you know, it's all in your head and it's not really uh, in your body. What do you, what do you do? Well, before you get up and leave the room, which is what I would want to do, but that don't do that. No, what you do is you say, what else could this possibly be? I, I, you can say either it may be all in my head. I don't think so. Or I really don't think that's accurate. I think I'd say, well, what else could it possibly be? And, and then, or do you have somebody else perhaps you could refer me to that could take another look and let's see what they think. I would not accept the diagnosis. And, and to be totally fair now to doctors, it isn't necessi necessarily so that the doctor's brushing you off. It may be in your head because we do suffer more from anxiety and depression than men do. So it's not an off the wall statement, although it can feel that way. Um, but I think the what else could this possibly be is an excellent question to ask. And frankly, I ask that whenever I do get a diagnosis, because again, there's a lot of diseases out there. So if he says it's disease A, well, I'd like a disease B so that I can go home and look it up and see what I think. If I'm a caregiver, and that's a really, that, that word can mean a ton of things. So let's just say if I'm a caregiver for my parents or a loved one or a friend, or I'm not their caregiver, and um, uh, I'm, but I'm involved in the decision-making process or trying to help out mom from afar. Um, what are some of the advice, or what's some of the advice you can give for caregivers or loved ones to watch out for in um, your parents or other loved ones? Um, you know, daily doctor visits or uh, or managing their chronic conditions. Well, I think, you know, first of all, women do about 80% of the caretaking in the whole world. I mean, that's amazing. And I don't have advice for what a caretaker should look for in their parents, because I'm assuming there's a doctor involved and that the doctor would tell you what to look for. Well, I meant, I meant in terms of, you know, being that person, being that, uh, you know, hey, being alongside that person saying, you know, making sure they're prompting uh, them with the right questions or, you know, that that second set of ears that you mentioned earlier. Right. Well, I'm going to answer it two different ways. The first, my first piece of advice, and there, there has been research on this, as the caretaker, take care of yourself. There have been so many studies where women, this is one of the times women didn't go to the doctor to refer back to your other questions, because uh, women let their heart conditions go because they were so busy caretaking for some member of their family that again, they didn't go to the doctor. So the first thing you have to do is take care of yourself. In fact, there was a study done where they did like a dermatologist did like a punch biopsy. They just did a, a punch thing in, in your skin. And they the, the women, the, the people that were caretakers healed much more slowly than the people who weren't caretaking because the caretakers were stressed and not as, as in such good shape themselves. So my first piece of advice would be definitely to, to listen to your body and take care of yourself. 
In fact, that's my advice about putting yourself last. Don't, because you really can't take care of your family if, you're, if you don't feel well yourself. And so that certainly applies to caretakers. And to, to, to uh, what kinds of questions your parents should ask, Again, you need a, you would need a, a same thing. You know, you would need a list, and you would discuss before the doctor got there what was going on. So, you know, you'd want to you'd want to help them focus it and and guide the guide the agenda so that as the caretaker, you also uh, got answers to the questions that you thought needed to be asked. You mentioned the word stress, and that was a couple minutes after you mentioned the words anxiety and depression. Yes. So yes. talk to me about, those three are all interrelated. Talk to me about sure. that in, in what you found in the course of writing your book. So there's a real connection. When, when If you're stressed, it really affects so much of what you do, how you think, how you feel. And we're all stressed. So, I mean, you can't, you can't go around thinking, well, I won't be stressed anymore. But you have to have different ways to deal with it and to get find a support group if you're ill. That always helps you. Um, whatever, there's suggestions in my book on, about how to deal with it because it depends on each person. But I love I loved those kinds of stories because you know they really bring home the points and they're fun. They do. And the book is called Sidelined. Right. Um, what now, questions, with- sorry, go ahead. I was just going to give you the rest of the title. Oh, yeah. I thought you forgot it and I was helping you out. No, 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 I didn't. Go, go do it. It's just called Sidelined, How Women Manage and Mismanage Their Health. <laughs> yes, that. And so um, talk to me about, uh, you already mentioned the next book, but um, um, talk to me about any questions. Gosh, I'm all flummoxed now. Hold on a second. Let me, let me start this over. Um. What questions did I not ask you that I should have about the book and about your research uh, well, and about women and their uh, doctors? Let me think about that for a minute. Well, the, let me just talk. If we, we, I guess we have a little time. Oh, One, yeah. oh good. One of the things I did sort of want to discuss is uh, the drug companies and the pharmaceutical industry, because you were absolutely right when you said they're aimed at women. And as again, I think I said that women make 80% of all the purchasing decisions on healthcare and the drug companies know that. But New Zealand and the United States are the only two companies in the world, I wanna repeat that, in the world that allow drug companies to market to consumers. And there are billions of dollars spent on that, billions. And those, those ads are incredibly successful. I think a drug that is advertised to consumers sells nine times more than drugs that aren't. And I think it's like two thirds of the people who see a drug ad on television take some sort of action, either call their doctor and make an appointment or request the drug, okay. whatever. So it's enormously successful. And I think that as consumers, we really need to be aware, particularly as women, that we are being targeted. And they've even found that if you have an ad that has a kid in it, they're more successful because women take care of their children first. That goes back to the beginning of our talk. Um, So I think that that's important for women to know. And we all wanna sort of rush for that magic pill. And be careful. That's all I have to say. There is a website called Dollars for Docs, and you can look up how much your particular doctor and whether or not your particular doctor accepts lunch and gifts and all kinds of things from pharmaceutical companies. And that will, t- if you if you feel that you've been prescribed something that perhaps is not what you want to take, 
um, look up the drug, go to Dollars for Docs and see what you can find out. That's my, that's my advice. Susan, this has been great. Thank you very much for your time. Anything else that I didn't cover no, that, uh, that you wanted so. to? I think that covers it. I'm, I I should go. I would like to rifle through my notes and call you back. I, <laughs> I think it's fine. Thank you. I just so enjoyed talking to you. Your questions were terrific, really. Thank I you, Susan. So I had a really, thank you, Susan. I had a wonderful time uh, spending some Thanks. time with you. Thank you. See you soon. My thanks to Susan Salinger for a great show. Make sure to check her book out at susansalinger.com or just hit the links on the Matt Ferret Show website. Until next time, to your wealth, wisdom, and wellness, I'm Matt Ferret, and thanks for tuning in. The Matt Ferret Show, related content, publications, and MF Media LLC is in no way associated, endorsed, or authorized by any governmental agency, including the Social Security Administration, the Department of Health and Human Services, or the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. The Matt Ferret Show is in no way associated with, authorized, approved, endorsed, nor in any way affiliated with any company, trademark names, or other marks mentioned or referenced in or on The Matt Ferret Show. Any such mention is for purpose of reference only. Any advice, generalized statistics, or opinions expressed are strictly those of the host and guests of The Matt Ferret Show. Although every effort has been made to ensure the contents of The Matt Ferret Show and related content are correct and complete, Laws and regulations change quickly and often. The ideas and opinions expressed on The Matt Ferret Show aren't meant to replace the sage advice of healthcare, insurance, financial planning, accounting, or legal professionals. You are responsible for your financial decisions. It is your sole responsibility to independently evaluate the accuracy, correctness, or completeness of the content, services, and products of, and associated with, The Matt Ferret Show, MF Media LLC, and any related content or publications. The thoughts and opinions expressed on The Matt Ferret Show are those of the host and The Matt Ferret Show guests only, and are not the thoughts and opinions of any current or former employer of the host or guests of The Matt Ferret Show, nor is The Matt Ferret Show made by, on behalf of, or endorsed or approved by any current or former employer of the host or guests of The Matt Ferret Show. 